welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this edition of Radio Curious, we revisit a December 2006 interview with Dr. Arthur Janoff, author of The Primal Stream. He died on October 1st, 2017, at his home in Malibu, California. A detailed obituary may be found in the October 4th, 2017, online edition of the New York Times. Together with his wife, Dr. Franz Janoff, Dr. Arthur Janoff asserted that the best emotional healing is obtained by reaching back to the point of injury that formed an initial imprint of the pain, claiming that pain often originates in the womb or in early childhood. Their work centered on a belief that repeated piercing screams focused on early trauma would free a person of physical and psychological pain. As stated in the New York Times obituary, this theory has been repeatedly debunked and discredited by colleagues as described in the Journal of Professional Psychology Research and Practice and the American Psychiatric Association. This criticism focused on the lack of any independent controlled studies demonstrating the Janoff therapy's effectiveness. Janoff also listed homosexuality among the ailments that primal therapy could, quote, cure, and continued to list it long after the American Psychiatric Association declassified homosexuality as a psychiatric disorder in 1973. Nonetheless, Janoff's patients included John Lennon, Yoko Ono, James Earl Jones, and the pianist Roger Williams. I spoke with Dr. Arthur Janoff and Dr. Franz Janoff from their home in Santa Monica, California in December 2006. We began our conversation when I asked them to explain how initial imprints in a person's life can be the cause of long-term pain. When a child is born and when a child grows up, the child has very serious needs. They're very serious in terms of his survival. And the whole system is developing according to however how those needs are fulfilled. And that's what we call love. If a child feels abandoned or is left alone in an incubator for hours or does not eat when he is hungry or doesn't have anybody to pick him up and so that he can feel comforted, that's a lack of love. That is imprinted seriously in the system because the system needs that to develop harmoniously and physiologically well. So if that does not happen, the hormones are changed, the heartbeat is changed, the whole nervous system is affected, and that's what we call pain. Well, what is the source or the background for um, knowing what you're saying? How did we find this out? Well, I mean, uh, this is many years ago now, actually about 38, 39 years ago, that somebody... Uh, told me about a vaudeville act, uh, Rafael Ortiz in New York, and he was marching up and down 
yelling mama and mama in his diapers and sucking on a baby bottle. And I was having a regular group therapy at the time. And I encouraged this man to do it, and he refused, but we went on. And when he did do it and yelled mommy, he fell off the chair and started screaming and yelling. And when he got all through, which was 30 minutes later, he, he touched the carpet and said, I can feel. And from that, I realized that maybe there's a way to access feelings. And sure enough, we tried it on other patients. And now, 36 years later, we have all the neurology worked out and the neurochemistry. And uh, it is pretty much what it was back then with a lot of changes and a lot of scientific apparatus and so on. But basically, there's a pain there. And we found a way to go back and relive the pain and allow the person to feel again, have a feeling life. And this was described in your book in the late 60s uh, called The Primal Scream. Exactly, exactly. Well, there's got to be more to it than somebody uh, rolling around on the floor screaming, Mommy, Mommy. How do you access these early imprints? Yes, there is a lot to it. Uh, that is, it's a lot more to it than that. Actually, people do not roll around the carpet screaming, Mommy, Mommy. What happens at the primal center, that's the way we do it, we start with people's life in the present. They come in hurting or unhappy with their lives. They have bad sexual life, bad relationships. They can't hold jobs. They have migraines. They have anxiety. Their life is very painful, or they can't feel anything, which is on the other side of the, of the dial. We also have people who can't feel anything in their lives. So what happens, we actually start with how they feel in the present. And if, let's say it's loneliness, someone is just very, very lonely, we help them get into it. What we do really is we block their defenses. And when we block the defense, the pain comes up. It comes up for everybody in every area of their life. So if that person starts feeling lonely and we help them feel it, have tears, cry deeper and deeper with each session, then usually what happens is that the loneliness throughout their life, the feeling is the vehicle for it. And the loneliness throughout their life keeps coming up. The memories, the, the moments that were crucial for them where they felt lonely. And this goes back all the way through their life. And that's really what happens in primal therapy. And yeah. at the primal center, we see that day in and day out every day on what everybody. We, what we found out recently, you know, is that these feelings in the, in the present, once you have access to these feelings, it becomes a vehicle which takes you back to the past. And there's a frequency, a resonance of the original neurons, the original imprint that gets stirred up again and allows the person deeper and deeper access into his unconscious. And we can measure all that, you see, and we do measure all that, both through the, what's called an amipramine binding and a lot of other fancy names for the fact that the serotonin levels come up and the cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone, go down and the, the body temperature goes down, which means something for longevity, and the blood pressure goes down in hypertensive patients about 24 points, and so on. You know, in other words, we, have, we do research on these patients every day, and we find uh, that they're getting better all the time. And not just that they say they're getting better, but that, that, that all the machines are hooked up, all the neurochemistry, all the blood tests, show that they are getting better. Well, the blood tests and the um, hypertension measurements uh, are over a period of time. Over a year. We measure every day, by the way, before and after every session. They have vital sign measurements, which tells us a lot about whether the feelings have been resolved for that day. And also we measure them at the end of the year. We used to do systematic uh, uh, EEGs, uh, electroencephalogram tests, uh, for their brain waves. 
and it got very, very expensive. We had to stop that. But we have an awful lot of uh, follow-up on these patients. Enough to know that the in one of my books, I forget which now, there's a list of the brain waves and what happens and the fact that the the brain becomes in better balance as a result of one year of this therapy. Well, you also talk about early imprints and the cause uh, of disequilibrium in a person's life um, stemming from early imprints. Well, yes. Um, there is obviously a womb life, which is very, very important because a, a human being is being created during that womb life. During the time in utero. Yes, during the time in utero. If the mother has an extremely stressful life, by the way, that does change the sexual hormones and can create predisposition for you know, one, one sexual predominance or the other. But also, all the heart rate gets uh, affected, the hormone levels again. Everything, when a child is in stress because the mother is in stress or smokes or does drug, it goes into the fetus and it affects the fetus physiologically and neurologically. Then birth is the second extremely important factor. People don't realize that birth for the baby is really a near-death experience while it's trying to struggle for life. Very often there is a, a, the phenomenon of anoxia, there is a lack of oxygen because the mother doesn't open too far, too, soon enough, or there is too much anesthesia that goes into the baby that loses its normal uh, force for being born. You know, the child is the one that gives the system the, the signal that it's ready to be born. All those factors make the child go into incredible stress and sometimes near-death experience that don't show outside. And we know that only by seeing our, our patients go back to that and feel that they're going to die and feel hopelessness and feel there is no, no way they're going to make it. They have, there is absolutely actually a language that starts coming up in therapy when they approach that experience. And so, you know, how do we know? Well, we, we used to do what's called the thermistor reading, which is a, a rectal thermometer, electronic thermometer. And we would find that in certain cases where there was too much anesthetic, the body temperature of the patient would drop three degrees in, in two or three minutes. And in other cases where it was a huge struggle, the body temperature would go, would go up two and three degrees. And the blood pressure, and there's a whole host of things that change. And during the session, we measure it. Well, there's a reliving going on, and before and after the session, we measure it. So we have a pretty good you know, control of what's happening to our patients. And what, we, what we've decided is that Insight therapy is just, you know, what I think I'm believing now is that the sit-up-and-talk therapy that's gone on for 100 years is just useless. And, you know, neurosis isn't made by lack of insights. You don't cure neurosis by giving more insights. And the whole thing about talking means that we're addressing the wrong brain. We're not going deep enough. And that's why now they have the treatment for depression where you drill holes in the brain and go down deep to stimulate various moods. Well, we're the only therapy that goes deep, very deep, in the same places where all the tranquilizers work and where those electronic probes work. So that's why we're getting such good results. But don't you uh, engage in talk therapy or talk as a way of leading people to their initial imprints? No. Uh, what we do really is what, I mean, obviously the patient starts with talking because they start talking about, you know, what bothers them in, in now's life. But we actually say very little in the session. What we're watching for is the sign the feeling is coming up and the sign that the deference is, is, is uh, blocking it. 
And what our job is, is to stop the access of the defense and take them back very softly, usually, and with very few words, to what hurts. And that's how it works. And little by little, the people cry a little more. And usually they say, you know, I can't believe I lived all my life with all this incredible pain and, and, and that I need to, how could I live with it? And the truth is, they couldn't really. They, go, they take drugs, they don't sleep, they have migraines. All that goes away once you lift the repression and feel all the tears and all the pain that is inside on all the levels. By the way, I didn't finish before. The, we, we stopped at birth, but then during the, the, the childhood, as I was mentioning before, the child needs love, needs to be heard, needs to be comforted, needs to be paid attention to, needs to be taken care of in the proper way. And if not, then the only, re- the only way the child can survive is by blocking the pain, the knowledge that maybe they don't care enough, maybe they don't have time for the child, maybe they don't love him because the, 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 uh, the conclusion of a child is always they don't love me. And the next thing, which is very important, they don't love me. What's wrong with me? And this what's wrong with me drives people in different directions in a dramatic way. How, what can I do to get love? Or they give up on love. Whatever it is, it has repercussions on their sex life, on their uh, behavior in general, on what they try to achieve or not try to achieve anymore, on, on every single aspect of their life. Especially, their, for example, their serotonin levels. In other words, we know that from very early trauma, there's a depletion of the serotonin supply so that the person is no longer comfortable in his or her skin. And so what we found through our research is that we have elevated their serotonin supplies you know, through primal therapy. And otherwise, they have to take Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft, and all that to keep their serotonin supplies up so they can manage more comfortably in the world, you know. So we try to cover all the bases, but I think basically we're the only therapy that talks about reliving, going back and reliving the pain of something you've never lived before. And that's awfully powerful. And I think that's the difference between primal therapy and all the other therapies. The other therapies talk about feelings, and we give access and allow them to feel those feelings. I want to ask you about what other therapists think about primal therapy, but before we get there, I want to mention that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Dr. Arthur Janoff, the author of Primal Healing, Access the Incredible Power of Feelings to Improve Your Health. And we're talking with Dr. Franz Janoff, who's the director of the Primal Center in Venice, California. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dr. Janoff and Dr. Janoff, Arthur and Franz, how do other therapists react to your mode of therapy within the professional uh, psychotherapist community? You know, I don't know. I truly don't know because I have very little contact with people outside, you know. I do know that in the academic world, for example, I was voted to the Academic Hall of Fame at the Claremont Graduate University. How other therapists take it, I don't know. But what I'm saying is you've got to stop talking to your patients and talking feelings to death. Because talking to people, by the way, is the, 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 the talking brain, the, the, uh, the cortex, is only the result of the, the uh, form, formation of the brain 
after all those years and all those events and all those minutes where the child has to defend or is impacted by whatever happens to him or her, good or bad. So when we go into a psychoanalyst, for example, and we talk about this, we're actually talking inside our defense system. When you're talking about psychoanalysis. For example, yeah, talking therapy, any talking therapy. What we, what we are accessing is actually an extraordinarily complicated maze of defenses for blocked feelings through our life. We're only able to express our feelings in the words that we know that are related to our experience. Yes. Uh, no, there are, there are feelings that have no words, believe it or not. And there are feelings that have no words. There are words. feelings of the baby, of the infant, of the one-year-old that are just feelings that have no words. And we have found a way to help people get into those feelings. And sometimes words, I've watched, I've watched patients go down, 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 and they get less and less articulate as they go down the chain of pain into the deep unconscious. But the feelings get stronger. And what we have found through our research is that the frontal, left frontal area of the brain starts to recede in its efficacy as you get down into the deeper feelings. So as the feeling centers get more active, like in the limbic system, the top level gets less active. And that, I think that's also unique in, in psychotherapy today. There's a way of finding out which brain we're talking to. And we're, for the last hundred years, we're talking to the wrong brain. What is your reaction to circumcision and the imprint that creates on a baby boy? The, I think the wrong assumption is that a baby doesn't feel anything. The baby feels everything. Actually, the baby feels a lot more than we do as adults because it is undefended. It is pure receptivity and reactivity. So when the baby is circumcised, I can't imagine it feels good. No, but we have, we have cases where uh, uh, patients who, who hear about an accident or think back to something painful get a cutting sensation in the penis. There's always some kind of repercussions from circumcision, which is most definitely a trauma. should never be done until the child's old enough to understand and elect to have it. Actually, we had a patient who never was able to repress and shut off the pain from circumcision. And he came to us, which we found a little strange, but we saw that actually it was real. It was real. He came to say, I want to feel my circumcision because I keep dreaming about it, I keep thinking about it. And in the end, yes, he did. He felt it, screamed a lot, cried a lot, and then could move on. He didn't have, you know, it was not bugging him all the time anymore. And it plays a, it plays a part in childhood bedwetting, which nearly always results in premature ejaculation as an adult. In other words, the penis is a source of pain and release. So what is your consideration of the religious doctrines that call for circumcision? Well, you know, originally, I think it was a question of hygiene, like a lot of rules that came from the Bible and the old times. So, you know, uh, it has been adopted by the religions, but it's not exactly great neurologically, maybe? Well, it's good. It's good because there's a far less incidence of HIV among people who have been circumcised, of, of, of men who have been circumcised. So obviously it has this hygienic component. But I don't think it should happen until the child's much older and can understand what's going on. Art, the issue of our developing brain that goes from um, the parts of, of our brain that control unconscious attributes, the heartbeat, respiration, and so forth, to the thinking part of our brain, which allows us to function under stress, you claim is the root of our mental problems. First of all, you have to understand that this brain of ours has 
evolved over millions and millions of years. And we have a reptilian brain, which has to do with our instincts and our, our uh, vital, vital functions that keep us alive every day. Then there's the emotional centers and what's called the limbic system that helps us feel and interpret our instincts and our sensations. And then finally, we have a thinking brain. And the thinking brain, I believe, evolved as a way to alienate ourselves from ourselves, from our painful feelings, so that we had somewhere to flee. We no longer can flee the tigers, you know, on land. We had to flee inside from the dangers that exist. And so we flee from our feelings. Well, what happens is we stop feeling. We've stopped, we've lost access to the feelings. The feelings still create damage, create, you know, heart vulnerabilities and high blood pressure and so on. And what we found a way to do is go down below that thinking center into the feelings, and it's very liberating. Patients feel more liberated than you can imagine, and the minute you get down to that pain, there's no more reason to take drugs or alcohol. As a matter of fact, they couldn't, because you know, there's no pain for, to be suppressed. It also changes behavior, because when you have a pain that you have to keep on avoiding all the time, your system makes you automatically avoid it. it, it that, that feeling becomes unconscious because it is repressed. And the minute you would get a little too close to it, you, have, you behave in a way that's going to take you further away from it. And in our brain research, we have found that there's a slowing down of that frontal area, which means the brain is much more relaxed. And there's a better balance between the right hemisphere and the left. So overall, we have a healthier brain. Let's say that you, you have an extraordinary amount of loneliness inside of you. Again, I go back to that simple example. The child feels lonely. It's, it's a major feeling we see all the time at the primal center. So the child has felt lonely all his life. There's two ways he's going to handle that. One is that he's going to pretend he doesn't care unconsciously, and it's going to become a loner. We have people who are 45 who've never had any sexual experience, who never got married, and are basically totally away from society. They live alone, and they feel it's okay. They feel it's okay until they can't stand it anymore, then they come to us. But in other words, they became somebody with no needs. Then on the other side, completely of the dial, you have the person who can't stand being alone for two seconds, and who is going to look for anybody to be with them, have become promiscuous, maybe even sexually, is going to constantly seek the company of others because they cannot stand being alone even for a minute. So they have become basically somebody else because they're constantly acting on that feeling that is unconscious, but that makes them do all those things. Let me give you an example. We're treating a guy now who's depressed. And he goes into parties and he suddenly is overwhelmed by feeling alone. There'll be 50 people in the room and he feels totally alone because that thing has resonated again with the original alienation. No one was there for him right after birth. And for the whole infancy, he was hardly ever touched. He has this terrible alienated feeling. Now that he's gone back to the context of it and the whole thing, he can now be in crowds without feeling that loneliness, that terrible aloneness, you know. So he's gone back to the origin. So you bring this back to the origin, saying that the early imprints, either in utero, in the womb, or within the first period of time after birth in childhood, is the cause of the disequilibrium. Well, let's, let's put it this way, that the, the nine months in the womb is something that's been avoided in the literature almost completely. And that, that's something that we're... It's not only womb life, it's also childhood life, obviously. But what we're trying to focus on and focus the field on is the fact that the nine months of womb life are super important and have been neglected. 
So then the other side of that are the early imprints that could cause a beneficial equilibrium and the flow back and forth from the right brain, uh, the right hemisphere of the brain to the left hemisphere of the brain. You know, I want to give you another example of a very, very early uh, trauma, although it didn't look like a trauma from the outside, of a patient of ours who cannot spend more than three or four days in one location, one geographical location. He is traveling and has been traveling all over the world incessantly until he one day says, well, you know, this is, this is, it was not working for him anymore, which is why he finally ended up coming at the primal center. At some point, neurosis may not, or your defenses may not work anymore because the pain is constantly being stirred up and the, the, the defense that is in place may not be effective anymore. So he came to us and throughout the therapy, he went back more and more into going to a very constraining childhood environment where he had extremely rigid parents. He could actually not do anything or talk or move in the way that was not the way they wanted him to. And all the way uh, under this and all the way down was a very, very long birth where he could not get out. It sounds crazy and it sounds a a little eerie and strange, but... This is what happened to him, and this yeah. was the nerve and the motor of all his life. And, and, and he, was, he spent his whole life getting out, at doing the act up, because it's symbolic, but he was getting out of a marriage and getting out of a job and getting out of a, a place where he lived, that kind of thing. He was acting out constantly, I've got to get out of here. And obviously did not know why until he had to go all the way down the chain. He knew he had a very constricting childhood, and he, you know, he blamed some of that, by the way, he did many, many years of psychotherapy, he blamed some of that on the knowledge that, yes, my parents were, you know, did not let me do anything I wanted, I had to be what they wanted and all that, but it didn't change. The, the, the portion, the, the strength that was driving him to move and to get out and, and, and to travel all the time was too strong, he was always ending up in a plane. Well, Dr. Franz Janoff, director of the Primal Center in Venice, California, and Dr. Arthur Janoff, author of Primal Healing, Access the Incredible Power of Feelings to Improve Your Health. I want to thank you both for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask each of you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, uh, I've read two books that I think are very important, and one is called Hostile Takeover, and the other is called uh, overthrow. It's a very good uh, history lesson on this overthrow thing about the, the rapacious U.S. governments and how they've overthrown every incipient democracy in the world for the last hundred years. And Dr. Franz Janoff, your books? Well, uh, you know, I discovered through primal therapy that I was an artist, which I had no idea about before, and I became a painter, and it's an area of my life that became extremely important for me. So I just finished the biography of Henry Matisse, and another book about Puccini's life. It's called Puccini. Well, Dr. Art Janoff and Dr. Franz Janoff, thank you both very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Dr. Arthur Janoff died October 1st, 2017. He's the author of, among other books, The Primal Scream. The theories and practices he promoted in this book have been repeatedly debunked and discredited by many psychiatric and psychological associations. The books he recommended are Hostile Takeover, How Big Money and Corruption Conquered Our Government and How We Can Take It Back, 
by David Sirota, and Overthrow, America's Century of Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq by Stephen Kinzer. The books Dr. Franz Janoff recommended are Matisse by Volkmar Essers and Puccini, a biography by Mary Jane Phillips Matz and William Weaver. This program was recorded on December 16, 2006. There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.